And I got to call you out, man. I, I didn't think you'd be one of the sports media types whose profile picture is from 20 years ago. <laughs> you know what that is? That I, I kid you not. That's what do you call those? Uh, high school senior photo. Oh my god! So that yeah, so I'm 18 in this photo. Which is so funny. You know. I used to, uh, you know, I came up as a college kid in Boston, going to Celtics games, and this was like early days on Twitter, right? Where I honestly, um, I honestly like didn't put two and two together that like a 55 year old Celtics beat writer from like Dorchester was like um, actually on Twitter and then, you'd, and then you'd see them and then they were guys who looked 30 years younger and I was like, yeah. oh, that's yeah. a different guy. But then you read, no, he just, he lost his hair now. <laughs> well, to be fair to myself, I think I look more or less like I do in this photo except my hair is gray now. But I don't know if I've changed a whole lot. My look is the same. My wardrobe's the same. And you still got a pretty mean post game from, from what I can recall. There you, there you go. Less less so every day, though. Less so every day. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Um, Adam does a great job covering all things Denver, but particularly the Nuggets for DNVR. They got a media company. They got a bar. All good things happening. So it's great to have you come on as, as, as a true connoisseur of all things Nuggets. Happy to be here, man. And Nuggets, you know how it is, man. I could, I could talk about them very easily. Always glad to talk about them. Are you still looking at this team from a moment of, like, excitement? Because I remember I went to Denver, what was it, November 2019, I believe, mm. right before – not right before, but a couple months before everything shut down. And before – this was this was before Michael Porter Jr. even had like a bit of a breakout. I remember yeah. I spent some time with him that summer in Vegas. We hung out in his hotel room a bit, um, talked about his tattoo on his arm, his Hebrew his Hebrew name, which I found interesting. Mm. Um, and it seemed like a good young kid who was just kind of struggling with the adaptation from being the number two prospect. Um, and then like basically couldn't get off the bench and now you know made that run to the conference finals had all those injuries blah 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 but back then like there was this harbored energy amongst the media amongst the fan base amongst the team from my week there and i've been back ever since but um i just i remember leaving feeling like oh everyone feels like they're building something that's about to arrive and then like kind of sort of did arrive but during the bubble which people have kind of forgotten about with a Jamal injury and an NPJ loss season, you know, coming in between. So where, where do you think the temperature stands right now? Um, the temperature it's, it's interesting. Cause I think you're right that at 2019, 2020 was the height of optimism. I would actually argue that the height of nuggets optimism came seven days before Jamal Murray, you know, tore his ACL blew out his knee. Because they had just made the trade for Aaron Gordon, and it appeared that right. the Michael Porter piece, you know, the learning curve was, you know, you were through the toughest part. He was starting to really shine. Jamal Murray was really shining, and obviously Jokic was making a leap, and later became the, that season became the MVP. So everything was looking optimistic. What's interesting is you, when Jamal Murray went down, 
you know, everybody's perspective was, okay, well, this is a setback. It's going to put them in limbo for a while. But when he comes back, that's a team that will pick up where they left off. And as is inevitable, fast forward 18 months, and it's hard to capture the feeling that you had then. Like, logically, we can walk through and say, okay, that team was good. They should be good again. But when you ask about the excitement, I think the, the like, reasoning behind the team, like, oh, we think they should be good for all those reasons, but the emotion is gone just because so much time has passed. So I think it's more, um, you know, like muted anticipation more than like, uh, you know, overwhelming excitement. And are we, I mean, I haven't talked to anybody there in a while. Like, are we just fully expecting and Mike to just be out there ready to go night one? Is that kind of where things stand from, your, from where you see it? This is part of what's so interesting about the Nuggets right now is I, we really don't know. You know, with Jamal, yeah. he's, he's been playing five on five. I don't know when the first time he actually got out on the court. The Nuggets actually, it was during Summer League, I believe, because Michael Malone spoke during, you know, after a Summer League practice, which is very unusual. Usually he doesn't speak and he spoke and I felt like it was him taking an opportunity to let everyone know. He said, hey, this was the most Jamal Murray has played five on five since the injury. He's starting to do live. So that was what, July, first week of July. Um, so we know, obviously, he's been cleared and we know that he has been playing full speed five on fives since July. Does that mean that he is ready? Michael Malone also mentioned that, you know, he's going to start the season on a, on a minutes restriction and that they're going to basically take an 82 game view of, of Jamal Murray this season. So I would not be surprised if he was not playing 30 minutes or more every single night until Christmas, somewhere around there. But the Michael Porter updates have, have been even less. We really haven't heard an official report on Michael Porter playing five on five. I've seen videos, you know, I've seen things that have been posted by other players, Rico Hines runs, but even runs at ball arena where he's been playing five on five with Bones Highland and some of the younger players, but we have not heard an official report from the team about whether he will or will not be fully cleared to participate and, and, and play minutes at the start of training camp. What do you expect to be, and then we'll kind of pivot here to some more like reporty backgroundy stuff. What do you expect to be the biggest growing pain of standing between this roster and, and getting back to that like legitimate, unfettered, contending spot. Because you're talking about the eight and no start after Aaron Gordon thing. Right. And it was kind of, people were excited because of how seamless the, the pieces seemed to fit. But this is, I mean, it's different now. Those guys have missed a lot of time. Aaron, I think, probably had one of the more curious roles in the league last year in terms of like sidekick guy who really is like the right. Nuggets needed him to be good to win games last year, but also they didn't right. need him to do too, too much. So they're very like Tobias Harris is maybe one of those guys yeah. who like the team needs a lot out of him, but also like, don't get ahead of yourself, kid. Like, like there's right. a role for you here. Don't get, don't don't go too, too far outside of the box that we kind of put you in here. Even if there's been skill sets flashed left and right, it's kind of funny that I say those two guys thinking back to being that, they were kind of stepping on each other's toes during the development days in Orlando. Um, right. is, is there something in particular you're going to focus on seeing how those four guys gel? I mean, obviously, I, I mean, everything I, I understand KCP's projecting out to be the fifth starter, right? When all this right. thing goes yep. well, and he, he's a pretty plug yep. and play three and D yep. 
I'm not too concerned about, I'm not concerned about Denver really at all, but there's, you're not just going to snap your fingers and find that magic again, like right from the jump. I mean, unless they do, and I'm a complete yeah. moron. I should have seen it coming. <laughs> well, I mean, it is possible that it, that it works that way. I mean, when they got Aaron Gordon, you thought there would be growing pains, and there wasn't at all. They were winning games and winning them by 20 points. And to your point about Aaron Gordon, I, I, I find it interesting. I am so impressed with Aaron Gordon's willingness to be a role player. Because, you know, he was he's kind of considered a sort of sub star but a star caliber like he never seems to want the ball he doesn't worry about his touches um even last year where he was elevated to basically the second best player he wasn't a guy that needed a lot he wasn't a needy player and i think when you add back in jamal murray michael porter he'll go back to the role we saw even albeit seldomly when when jamal murray was healthy where you're not really running any plays for him he's just screening rebounding defending and getting a lot of points just off of you know um the ball moving and, and everything else the, you asked me, there's two things I think about when you ask the question, the way that you did, number one, we're all excited about that core four, but the last time they played together, when Jamal Murray got hurt, not a single player that will be on the, in the Nuggets' rotation this season was on the team outside of the core four, meaning all of the supporting cast outside of Michael Porter, Murray, Jokic, and Gordon, all of the supporting pieces are now new from that moment in time. So as much as, yes, we have proof of concept, there are a lot of new just pieces around bench units and combinations you're going to throw out that are all different. So that's part of it. Fair part to me, forget Aaron Gordon, because to me, he's like KCP. He's plug and play. Both guys seem willing to accept a role, you know, a diminished role or whatever. The real question is, we've never really seen Murray, Porter, and Jokic fully click. Jokic and Porter have played extended minutes when Murray was hurt. They looked great. Murray and Jokic have obviously played a lot of extended minutes and looked great. You get all three of them out there, and it does seem like a little bit of a, are we actually getting the added bonus here? Are all three of those guys kind of coming together in a way that looks good? The numbers have been great, but you never felt like you fully unlocked that lineup. And that's the big question for me. Murray's probably going to 15, 20 games this year just off of rest. Michael Porter, the same thing. Through 60 games sprinkled throughout, if you're lucky enough to get that from everybody, can you get the continuity and the uh, uh, chemistry needed to unlock the potential of that trio is the big question for me. With Gordon, it's interesting you're mentioning him as such a plug-and-play guy because that was kind of the big talking point about him when he was on the trade block. And people around him were saying to me, if Aaron goes to this situation and realizes that he's not Paul George, like that Frank Lolo right. term in Orlando, and realizes he's more of a, a stretch four and playmaking four type guy, what could the ceiling be on the team that he's on? And it, it, clearly the, the, the it all clicked when he got that. I don't know if that's a credit to Mike Malone's coaching staff. I don't know if that's just a credit to Aaron Gordon. Um, do you have any yeah. on to that? I do. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I do. I think so. This is one of the most interesting questions. The guy last year, we, we almost need a name for this a all star caliber player or fringe all star caliber player that accepts a lesser role. And maybe we call this the Andrew Wiggins Award because last season that was Andrew Wiggins, a guy that, you know, <laughs> it's, it's ironic that he actually ended up being an all star in the year that he committed to being a role player, a high level role player. But he was a guy that was unlocked there. And I credit, you know, Steve Kerr, I credit Draymond Green, but I really credit Steph Curry, the the star of that team that is so willing to be off ball and so willing to just, you know, be a collaborative superstar. Um, 
And I look in Denver and I look the exact same way. When you have Nikola Jokic, there was a great story that was told last year by Austin Rivers on, on a podcast. I don't remember which podcast it was, or maybe it was in an interview where he said, I walked into the gym one day to get a workout and Yoke's on the main court and he bumped over to the side court so that I could use the main court. He's like, I'm a bench guy. This is the star and the MVP. Like no other star in the NBA would be that way, but that's just him and how he operates trying to set a tone of like, hey, we're all equal here. So again, I credit Aaron Gordon first and foremost. You credit the player who does it. I credit Michael Malone for setting a cultural example. But to me, a lot of this comes down to Nikola Jokic and the way he operates of just this like, hey, if I'm willing to play a certain way and I'm not being demanding in these ways, everybody else gets in line and it makes it easier for a guy like Aaron Gordon to say, okay, I'm going to copy that, that ethos. I think the last time I talked Nuggets on here in depth was with Mike Singer after the Tim Connolly departure. And I remember being very interested in that story at the time for how it affected the Nuggets. And I, and I, remain, and I remain curious to see moving forward because Callum Booth is an executive that a lot of people were not just high on, but I think really believed in. Like there are guys who rise to the oh top candidate anytime there's an, a job that gets open status who may have gotten there for peculiar reasons or politically were inclined to right. do so and what have you. And then there are those two people who are like, this guy is next up. He's it's only a matter of time till he got his team, blah, blah, blah. Like, I definitely think Calvin Booth fell into that ladder camp where people would always talk about seeing him on the road, one of the more dogged scouts in terms of top-level execs that were out there. Um, mixing it with the fact that from everything I had heard over the years, a Tim Connolly-led front office was said to be one that maybe even overvalued the players that they drafted, but certainly held on to them very close. and. Right wanted to create this nurturing familial we're all building this together type of environment where even yeah. trading Malik Beasley and Wancho away at the deadline was kind of shocking and the whole Aaron Gordon push into the table was a bit out of left field right right um and then you see you know very quickly into Calvin's tenure it was always talk about fucking De Composo being on the on the block, Monty Morris being in trade conversation. Right. Sure enough, Monty and Will Barton go out the door. So as much as we are talking about excitement and things moving forward, this isn't to say we shouldn't be, but there is kind of an undercurrent running through all yeah. this snowballing, uh, you know, re, a, a, a rebuild on a good trajectory, if you will. Um, and I'm curious how much that is coloring your perspective of this season and the next couple of years as well. I love that you brought this up, Jake. This, I think, is a really good point that you know people close to Denver kind of sense this. But so, so I'm, 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 I'm pleasantly. I'm not going to say surprised because I know you're you're plugged into everything. But it's one <laughs> of those things that I just don't see talked about a lot. In that, you know, the Tim Conley situation was interesting. It definitely ended on, I don't want to say bad blood, but anybody that watched the Josh Kroenke presser in the aftermath of that knows that, you know, it didn't go down the way the team wanted. You know, they felt a little betrayed. Tim Kahn felt a little betrayed. It becomes a little bit of an ugly situation. But I think part of what you're getting at here was there was, I think part of the calculus for the Kroenke's, not all of it, but part of it was that they looked at Calvin Booth and thought, there's a chance that he's actually a better option. 
that this is like, hey, this is just a scenario for us to move on from. Tim has all of these strengths. He's been great at finding talent and bringing these guys. But one of his weaknesses, perhaps, was an inability to make the hard moves, the hard trades that, um, you know, you get rid of guys, you create a family environment, it becomes difficult to fire a family member. And maybe that's what's needed in this stage. So I think part of the calculus was exactly what you're talking about was, hey, we're breaking up that continuity we've had from an organization, but maybe that's exactly what's needed. And then to your point, one of the first things Calvin Booth does is trade Will Barton, who is the longest tenured nugget. He'd actually been here longer than anybody on the team, including Nikola Jokic, uh, and then including Michael Malone, by the way. And then you also trade away Monte Morris, who was a connective thread. Monte Morris is a great player, but he's also one of those guys that was friends with everybody on the roster. Like, you know, he was a guy that everybody liked. Um, so you lose those, you know, those two guys. That does sig signal a big shift. And another big shift, I'll tell you, you know, if you look at the draft, Tim Conley always got players that were hoopers, that were exciting, high upside. Bones Highland is a quintessential Tim Conley pick because he is a great offensive player, Maybe a little bit raw or this or that, but he's just an exciting high upside flyer. You look at Calvin Booth and he takes this year Christian Brown, who is like an unsexy player, a very good defender, very smart player. He's got good you know length and positional size, shooting guard six foot seven, um, but he's not sexy. He's going to be a lockdown defender if he hits. It's because he's a lockdown defender that you know plays a very narrow role. And then he takes a flyer on a guy at Peyton Watson who averaged two points per game at UCLA. It's to me such a cultural shift of, okay, we're not just moving on from Tim Conley because of the situation. There's a philosophical difference of we have enough talent. Now we have to decide or we have to find players who can defend and fill in the gaps, the unsexy players that help you win a championship. Now, whether the Calvin Booth got that right and the guys he brought in, also you know, a guy in Bruce Brown, whether he got that right is to be determined. But to me, it's a pretty clear philosophical shift that the Nuggets have made this offseason that it's going to take them in a different direction. Um, I also asked that, I mean, before that, that was why I went to Denver in 2019 to write that story. It was the idea that we had Katie and Kyrie teaming up in Brooklyn and Kawhi and the Clippers were or Kawhi and Paul George with the Clippers and LeBron and AD. And it was the, the era of the super team and the, and the superstar movement and blah, blah, blah. And the Nuggets right. were the exact opposite. And, and it made kind of interesting fitting sense to me that they made it to the conference finals that in the, the year of that, right. where if I, if I'm no, I, I was going to say drew Holiday deal to Milwaukee, but that, that was the year after. Um, the, the, even, but even Denver the, was in on that deal though. Like, to, you know, Denver was in on that deal where it was going to be one of those things where Denver could have gotten drew holiday, but they would have had to give it up. Obviously the future draft capital was big, but they probably would have had to depart from the young upside players that they had namely Michael Porter. And I think looking at it in hindsight, you probably look at that and say, Drew Holiday is as impactful of, of, of a player that if you had to lose your draft picks that became Bones Highland and Zeke Naji and also Michael Porter and maybe two more draft picks, but you had that elite, arguably the best perimeter defender in all of the NBA to go along Murray and Porter. To me, I actually look at it now and I say, Murray and Porter have proven that the two of them make as unstoppable of a duo as you're going to get. They beat the Clippers with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. They beat, you know, the Utah Jazz with Donovan Mitchell going for 50 points. They've beaten Damian Lillard, even though they were, they were healthy. You got Jokic, obviously, without Murray, but able to get past that one. I, mm -hmm. think you, I, I think the Nuggets now can say, hey, Murray and Jokic are good enough that there's no solve for them. But what yes. there is a solve is they can't guard at the highest levels. 
And so now a player like Drew Holiday, I think if they could have a mulligan, they'd probably say, yeah, that's a move we probably should have done. Yeah, I meant in terms of how they were built. Like the Nuggets, before the Aaron Gordon trade, were just this homegrown team. I remember right, there was right. some stat that the PR department gave me where like they brought back from, from the last year's season, they brought back uh, X number of – like the number increased five years in a row. They were the only right. team in NBA history, I believe – Something, something like that right. uh, of this unprecedented continuity that they were pounding their chest about um, that I thought was such a in stark contrast to how these other teams were being built. Um, right. And now they're not really, I mean, they still are a, a largely homegrown unit, but um, they're not like that, that team building experiment anymore, to your point. Like they have arrived, they are one of those right. teams. Um, and, and this I, year, I, by the way, Jake, is a hard correction because. Bones Highland and Jamal Murray have not really played together. Neither has Bones Highland and Michael Porter. Bruce Brown and KCP haven't played with any of these guys. You know, then you have guys like Jeff Green and Zeke Naji who haven't played that much with these guys. So most of the guys on this rock, Denver went from the most continuity to actually surprisingly little entering this season. Yeah. And you were talking about a couple of things over the past several minutes. One in that ownership group, looking at Calvin Booth as potentially, you know, a better option to Tim Connolly, which to me is almost ident- almost identically mirrors a situation in roster construction where some player like in Orlando circumstance when they traded Aaron Gordon, um, or m- maybe not as direct a comparison, but when there's a player on a rookie deal is about to get paid and yeah. the team decides, you know what, we could – trade that player because we've got this young guy who we can just develop and plug in. He might even end up being better. And those are the types of decisions, the big, when do we actually pull the trigger? When do we, maybe not tear this thing apart, but like, when do we take a thing that's going good and take out some pieces and hopefully become great? That's, that's a big step. People talk about it all the time, top to bottom in the NBA of moving from a 40 to 50 win team um, yeah. and moving from a second-round team to a legitimate championship contender. And that's something I think nerds and critics would have said Denver didn't do. You mentioned the Drew Holiday thing not happening. Obviously, it, right. it, it takes a couple – it takes a, a lot of factors and multiple parties to come together to make a trade work. Um, but, you know, the Kevin Love, Paul George, three-way stuff never came through. That right. there's, you know, there's been so much – talk behind the scenes about how whenever they inquired about Bradley Beal, they never really got, they never really were willing to make too serious of an offer. Um, And there's something that I have, I've said this a lot on the show, but I think the gut check time of when do you put your chips on the table and when do you go make a big move is something that is a skill to have as a front office, as a collective, but as an executive as well. Um, and I think that is ultimately a lot of 10 years failures in terms of not getting to that ultimate goal of sure win a championship, but even just being a, a team that's got a shot, right? Because right. the, 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 the most honest and I guess humble competitors at the top of this business will say that there's really no such thing as championship or bust. Like you can't guarantee you're going to win. Like you have to just give yourself a chance. Look at Toronto winning in 2019, yeah. you know, Dallas with Dirk finally breaking through. Like there are these moments where if you're just knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door, 
maybe that will be you. I mean, the right. Lakers 2020 title might be a, end up being a very good example of that, right? Depending on how 100%. this all works out. So that's, I mean, the Gordon deal was good. Like, you got to give a lot of credit where it's due there, especially with how it worked. And maybe that will be the piece that that was it. Um, but I'll be curious to see as you now they're in the big game now, right? Any move that right. Denver makes is now a tweak and an adjustment to a perceived title contender. So right. I am just very curious to go back, kind of round out this Calvin Booth, Tim Connolly part of my things I wanted to discuss. I'm just curious to see how much more aggressive Denver becomes because they already kind of were this offseason, like you said, having this be a different looking team. The Monty stuff, I mean, Will Barton was definitely uh, a fixture of that culture, right, for a long, long time. Um, totally. And there's some younger dudes who are probably going to have – a, a much larger role where, you know, Zeke Nadi has been supposed to be the, this breakout right. player for a while now. You mentioned Christian Braun, how good will Bull and Thailand really become? He was definitely, right. from, from from my understanding, I mean, he, he wasn't the guy out the door. It was Monty Morris. Composite was talked about too, but Highland definitely was someone who I think if you asked him and he answered honestly, he was pre- pretty prepared to not be here in Denver this yeah. year because of just the nature of how much conversations were were happening. Um, right. So I, he was I'm the most valuable that. trade piece. So I think, I don't yeah. know that it's necessarily Denver was like trying to trade him or something like this or that, but it was one of those but things where, him, yeah. but they were talking about it. And that's a thing that I don't think has, we've seen. I'm glad you kind of mentioned it because I don't think it's a thing that we've seen reported a whole lot, but it is something that I had heard sort of behind the scenes of like, hey, that was always a possibility just because maybe you retained a Barton and a Monte or maybe you trade them for a different player if you only gave up Bones, you could have gotten, you know, KCP or something else just for Bones and, and, and retain those guys. And maybe you're better off, at least in the short run, if you would have made that move. So I know that was at least part of the decision making. But I want to go back to your point, though, because there is a sliding door to this. Like, all this stuff, sports are about what happened, and we always write the story. If we go back to the sliding doors moment where Denver did not get Drew Holiday, first of all, if you remember, I think it was like five picks total, which at the time seemed crazy. But little did we know, it was the start of a new paradigm where players just cost five picks now, right? Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, all these other guys. So at the moment, that was a little bit of a, a unique situation, or it felt like a unique situation. And number two, it because Milwaukee ended up working out, and because Kevin Durant's toe was on the line, we can all look at it, and, and yes. Brooklyn's up losing, we can all look at it and say every team should have done this. And I think there's some truth to that. Like I just said, I think Denver probably should have done that. But another thing also happened that year, and that is that Jeremy Grant, who Denver made a smart move to acquire and to get, decided he didn't want to be in Denver for reasons that weren't anything about, you know, like basketball necessary reason. Like they were just saying, hey, he was the right guy. He just didn't want to be there. And I don't know that you could have necessarily known that going into it. Denver paid assets to get him. So there is this sliding door scenario where Denver actually was starting to push chips in and say, okay, it's go time. Jeremy Grant helps complete the roster. And sometimes players just don't want to be there and you end up losing assets, you know, losing trade chips. Um, you know, you just kind of, you, you roll snake eyes. Denver, I think, rebounded by getting Aaron Gordon to replace him. But again, it costs more trade chips to acquire. They essentially traded, made two trades to find one guy. Um, so I think Denver was already under Tim Conley on the path of slowly inching towards this, okay, it's time to get serious and, and break up the continuity. Um, but then, of course, when the injuries happened, you the, the team's been in limbo for 18 months. And that's not necessarily a 
bad thing moving forward here, just the cost of doing business. Like, now when the trade deadline comes up and rumors start to infiltrate the locker room, like, that's just going to be a thing. It's funny. Yep. I, I get it's funny saying that because I am one of the people who helps per- perpetuate that noise. Um, <laughs> right. And it's also funny because, like, the Bones Highland thing for a good example is you'll hear team people say sometimes, well, why is that newsworthy? Like, sure, we had a conversation about it. We had a conversation with, some, with right. a lot of guys. But right, right, right. I definitely, in my running notes that I keep, like – Every six, every transaction window is reflective of what's going to happen, or or can be reflective of what's going to happen um, in the next one, and vice versa. Look, looking back in time, like it, it is a very interesting moment to me when a team goes from well, we won't, or we refuse to discuss this person, like he's, right, right. he's untouchable, to then they start to listen. That's the, just the crack. I mean, yep. I had. I talk about my dynasty fantasy football team on the show far too often, but like, <laughs> I just pulled off a Tyree kill trade. And like, I started off that talk immediately. Like I had my, I had Michael Pittman. He was like my, my big blue chip prospect, for Tyree kill. Um, <laughs> I and, and I started off saying like, he was untouchable because I was trying to get Tyree kill without right. Michael Pittman. Right. And then, right. Cut, and then I saw the second I made him available, everything changed. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, do think that, I do think that is real. Yeah, and, totally. Like Matisse Tybo in Philly, he was not, he was not going to be discussed in Ben Simmons stuff. Absolutely right. not. You can't have him, him or Maxi. They're untouchable. Right. And you flash forward to the summer after a pretty disastrous playoff performance and the vaccination yep. stuff that held him out. All of a sudden, he's uh, for a contract <laughs> extension. He's right. a trade off left and right. Like to me, that the change of the change of that marketplace and how teams are willing to look at um, players in terms of even just conversations with teams. I personally think it's it's notable and newsworthy, um, and it is interesting sometimes how people on the inside might disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, you would know better than me, but with New York, that was maybe Quentin Grimes, right? He was untouchable in any Donovan trade deals and then the deal gets done and maybe I don't maybe New York was like hey we were just saying that now give us you know give us till December and we were then he was available or something I don't know but the broader point with regards to Denver is because Tim Conley was so slow like Tim Conley is one of those guys that talks texts these guys you know like not every GM some GMs are emotionally and you know they're removed from the players like hey I'm gonna have to trade these guys I don't want to get to know him Tim Conley was the opposite he would have dinner with these guys all the time he'd be texting them he was close to him and you're right that one thing I'm curious to watch this year is when it does come time for the trade deadline, Denver has avoided any of those distractions of like, hey, there really hasn't been a lot of names that have po- like Woj and Shams and you and everybody else are not really saying like, hey, I'm hearing things about Bones Highland or I'm hearing things about so-and-so or and Michael Porter. Those things, Denver's avoided those in large part. That's the benefit of Tim Conley being so slow to trade anyone. I do wonder if that changes this year and we get to the deadline and all of a sudden big players' names are being mentioned, not because they're being shopped, but just because Denver knows, hey, we do need to make a big splash. And everybody besides, you know, Jokic is, is you know, on the table. Yeah. 
Um, how would you think the, the fan base would react to that? I mean, Ball Arena kind of seems like a bit mom and poppy shop, like little league parents and fans <laughs> type of vibe. I, you know, I, I, I would actually push back on that in one way and just say, I think Denver, you know, it's a front running. Most cities are this way. It's a front running sports town. And I don't think Denver would make a move, you know, just to make a move or anything like that. But if, so if they were to trade, again, I don't think these talks are happening, but if they were to trade a Jamal Murray or an Aaron Gordon or something like this, but it brought in a piece that made the team better, I think the fan base would move on pretty quickly. I don't. I don't think it's this thing where it's like you better never. I'd rather lose with Murray than win with KD or something like that. I think the fan base, if it worked, the fan base would be all about it. All right. Last thing on the agenda that I want to poke your brain about. And then is that even an expression? Pick your brain. There you Um, go. And uh, if anyone wants to call in and also poke, pick the brain of Adam Maris, please do. Um, And then I'll get you out of here. Um, We went to Serbia for a bit this offseason. I don't know how much you are able to share, say, with not wanting to spoil good content coming, but what did you learn from your your travels to the the roots of (laughs) Jokic and how how did that change your perspective and your expectations for him moving forward through not just this season, but the rest of his career already being a a two-time MVP? It's funny you phrase it that way. Like, what did you learn? Because I, I, I would, I could answer that for the next three hours, and I would still leave some things out. I mean, it was an incredible learning experience. Um, but to distill it down, the thing I would, I would share is um, there are really great stories that have gone untold with international basketball players, uh, developmental programs, and, and these different things. And one of the things I walk away with when you ask, like, you know. How do I apply the knowledge I got? Like, what is it, what I'm taking away? You know, Jokic comes from a very impressive and um, a basketball, Yugoslavian slash Serbian basketball tradition that has produced a a lot of really good players. Um, And so when you see a lot of the things that he is good at, just the the way he sees the court or this or that, I don't think they're wholly, I mean, a lot of this is just talent and we know this. But I don't think they're wholly coincidental that he excels in the specific ways that he excels. Um, there are traditions, there are cultural factors, um, there are histories, there are star players that every player aspires to be that Jokic is obviously watching and, and learning from as he's developing and, and molded him this way. And I would say that one of the more interesting things, and as I'm making this documentary that's on our trip, one of my big takeaways that I hope to really show uh, and explain in detail is I think that while Jokic is both a product of the Yugoslavian slash Serbian basketball school, I think a lot of his growth over the last three years where he's gone from a great, you know, high upside talent to a two-time MVP comes from him fully absorbing the lessons that he learned growing up and through the system and and the coaching style and all the different things um, that molded him as a Serbian basketball player and then mixing them, breaking from that tradition in many ways and blending what he's learned from the NBA that are very, in, in many ways, counterintuitive to the Yugoslavian basketball school. And I think that's what's so interesting is Jokic, to me, in 2022, is a very interesting blend of the traditional Yugoslavian style and I'll call it, I guess, the American or NBA style of basketball. And to me, that's a really cool story. So you got a documentary coming? I mean, calling it a documentary feels a little bit weird to me. It's going to end up being like a 90-minute feature video. Um, 
you know, it, it's going to be about our trip, sort of Anthony Bourdain style, you know, following us from start to finish on this trip, all the different interviews we had and all the different lessons and experiences that we had, the game that we watched out there. We watched the World Cup qualifier between him and Giannis, which was an absolutely incredible game. 19,000 people, the loudest arena you've ever been in in your life, two best players in the world going head to head, and it went to overtime. Just an incredible, and, and nobody was there. I was the only American media member in this gym, and I couldn't believe I'm watching the two best players on earth in what's effectively an elimination game, and there's nobody here. And there's all these great stories that I, you know, throughout the week that I'm collecting and I'm thinking, how is this story going untold? It's such a great one. Um, but, but yeah, so, so I don't know if I'll call it a documentary, but it's more of like an Anthony Bourdain style uh, travel slash basketball show that I think will be really, really entertaining and interesting. There you go, man. All right. Before I let you go, I do this, all, I do this with every guest. I ask you a bunch of questions. I feel like it's only fair. Do you have anything you want to throw my way? Mm. I'm curious, you know, you hit, it's funny because I think you hit the thing that's most interesting to me in terms of Denver on paper is better than ever, but the soul of the team is different, not worse. It's just different. Like one of the things that have made, I think we can credit their success is that continuity and family feel. And I just wonder, like Tim Conley was such a big part of that. The way he did business was such a big part. Like he'd go to people's you know, houses and he would tell players to their face, Hey, what are you doing? You're screwed up. And he just had that unique relationship. And I do wonder if you've seen this before, you've seen teams that have changed their cultural identity and it maybe pushes them over the top, or maybe it just becomes such a difference that it's like, Hey, every, this, the energy changed with that team. And do you have a sense what you think? I mean, again, I don't think anybody knows this, but do you have a sense that this is, you know, Denver, the, the risk of this being a positive cultural change versus negative one. So I do, I do wonder how necessary that like personality fabric stemming from the lead executive matters. Um, right, right. Like part it's not of the why, star player. Yeah, exactly. Part of why I think the Warriors have had so much success and this is definitely something I, I'm trying to talk about or write about in greater detail sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I think Bob Myers's method of leadership and mm. not being the center of attention, but also kind of still yeah. being like if Steph Curry is the blood like Bob Myers is the heart pumping that blood. You know what I mean? If that's right. a, a terrible metaphor. Sure. But, but I like, get it. Yeah. So with Denver, that's all that's been established, right? Like part of that whole culture that we're doing it differently. Continuity brand was about how we picked the right guys who are about the right things. And right. You know, Jokic is everything, right? He's right. not necessarily the glueiest guy in terms of personality and what have you, right? He's not having the whole team over for dinner and stuff like that from everything I've heard, but it certainly sounds like people will go to work for that guy and they know he will go to work for them if he's standing next to them. And I, 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 I feel like as long as things are winning and the way they play such a connective way of basketball by, by the fact that, he's so good at getting everybody involved and in turn making everybody better. I think it'll be fine. Um, right. It'll be different, but every team will be different being, I remember yep. 
I talked to Kyle Quinn for my book, and he's one of those dudes who, like, I mean, being in the middle of a rebuild as, like, a draft pick, like, that's probably the peak of your career because of, like, <laughs> feeling, feeling like you're part of yeah. something. Everyone's gung, yeah. everyone's gung ho. The GM and the head coach so came true. together and had their press conference. We're going to build this thing right. The buildings like this guy, this guy, even Kyle O'Quinn. Not to disperse Kyle O'Quinn, but I remember talking to Kyle O'Quinn when Jacques Vaughn got fired, and he said like even his mom was upset because they thought this was just going to be our team moving forward, and we were all going to get to the finish line together. And that's just right. not how it works. Right. So I think. The pieces that need to get there together, though, are the Jokic's and the Murray's and whatever. And even if you trade out one of those guys, like, as long as you've got that main guy and that main ethos that is generally accepted and uplifted and uh, furthered by that main guy, like, I don't, I'm not expecting it, – it'll be like when a, when your favorite band puts out a new album that isn't exactly what their last right. album was like, but – and you might right. not like it at first, but on your second <laughs> listen and come like 40 games right. and you look up in Denver's 28 and 12, you'll be like, okay, yeah, like they're, you know, 20 and 12, maybe 25 and 15. It's so like, true. This team's pretty good. This team's pretty good. That's, 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 my, a, that, that's what it'll take. My, yeah. I'll tell you, this is the last interesting thing I'll, I'll, I'll say about Denver from just a basketball standpoint. I think they have two. If you told me they won a championship this year, there's one of two ways I could see that going. Number one, Either Michael Porter was so good offensively, as we've seen before, by the way, in long stretches. Like there was a stat the last time he played the full season, he shot like sixty percent from the field or something. Like so, either he's so good offensively that Denver just becomes unsolvable and no team can guard them, or he like improves defensively to where it's just the you know good, really good on offense, but he's become better defensively and and now it works. Or that. They just went away from him. They decided that Contavious Caldwell Pope, Aaron Gordon, and Bruce Brown are your three guys you put around Jamal Murray, and, and that works. So for me, I kind of like Denver having two avenues towards what I see as you know good. Like I, I believe in both game plans, but the thing that's hard is, you know, it's not easy to bench a max contract player if that's what it takes. You get into a playoff series and it's like, hey, you can't defend with Jokic and MBJ and Murray on the court together. You got to make this tough call. That's a hard thing to do. So I, I'm, I like Denver because they have an option that I really buy in, an option that I'm hopeful for, but, but those are also old decisions to make and, and sometimes can, can lead to some real uh, frustration, I guess, along the way. There you go, man. Anything you want to plug aside from the, the Serbia stuff before you get out of here? No, people can always check out DNVR's YouTube channel. If, if people are interested in the Serbia stuff, we already have a lot of content on our YouTube page. You'd have to scroll back, you know, two, three weeks. But there's some really cool, uh, I guess we'll call them vlogs, just kind of videos that followed us day to day out there. That If you're interested in that sort of thing, um, I think you'll find them really entertaining. Sounds good, man. Thank you for popping on. I appreciate the time. Hope to see you down the road sometime soon. And I'm very curious to be reading your stuff and chatting with you along the way this season, man. Thanks so much, buddy. Have a good one. See you guys.